Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Dr. Jesse Gaeta. She is the Chief Medical Officer of the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program. Happy to be here. Okay. SPOT. Can you tell us a little bit about that? SPOT is, you know, a very explicit harm reduction program, which is sometimes a, a shift for, for a health center um, to make. So I can tell you a little bit more about SPOT. Mm-hmm. We have decided that we wanted to figure out how in this building to um, respond in a more effective way um, to overdoses, maybe even prevent the overdose. We certainly want to make sure that no one's going to die from an overdose. So our very first goal is prevent fatal overdose. So what can we do? What kind of program can we build for someone who's actively using right now to prevent overdose? Well, there's lots of answers to that question, but the thing that's been missing for us is having a place where people can go when they are intoxicated and maybe dangerously so, very sedated, um, so that they're not alone and they're not in public, they're not on a street corner with, you know, with no medical response nearby. Um, that's sort of the explicit goal of SPOT. We, we, uh, yeah, we, we basically wanted to find some street-level space. We didn't have much. We decided to convert an old conference room that's large into this clinical programming. It's right on the inside of our front door, right in our lobby. Um, and it's a quiet spot tucked away there um, where people can just walk in. And, in fact, they don't even have to give us their name. Um, people are very fearful that of what our intention is. They're, they're fearful of um, being arrested. They're fearful of being judged. We've had to really sort of build up some rapport and some street credibility. And one way to just decrease barriers um, as much as possible is to even say, gosh, you know what, you don't even have to tell us your name if you don't want to. Um, and so people walk right in, and usually they come in because they've used more than they usually have, um, or someone brings them in, a friend or a passerby uh, brings them in from the surrounding block here uh, because they're not really able to stay awake anymore, and they're you know, in the middle of the street, um, or they're, you know, sort of slumped against a building and they're still breathing, and you're not really sure what to do with this person. So I was explaining how I sometimes come across people walking in from the parking garage, yeah. and maybe people in urban areas especially, or maybe families even um, at home, have 
have had this this conundrum of you see that somebody's sedated, um, that they've just used a substance, but you're not really sure if um, you know if, if they need to be in an emergency room. You're not sure if you call 911 or are they okay because they're still breathing. Um, and I think it's really hard to know that when you come across somebody who's in a bad way. You don't know if the drugs are um, not yet at peak effect and their breathing is actually going to stop in 15 or 20 minutes, or is it on the other side of, 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 of this use and, and the drugs are beginning to wear off and they're going to be just fine and able to walk away in a little while. Sure. You really have no idea. Yeah, that's a good um, point. Yeah. So this program was really one in which we wanted people to feel like they could come in or bring someone else in when they needed to be monitored because they just weren't sure what was going to happen. Um, and so people usually will walk in or be carried in, and they're initially often able to still to talk to us, maybe just slightly. And the thing that we commonly hear is, look, um, I got this is what I took today, and I'm just worried. It's a little more than I usually take, and, and I'm worried. Do you mind if I just stay here for a little while? Or sometimes we'll hear... Um, you know, my friend overdosed today. He used the same stuff that I'm using now. I'm just, I'm just nervous that it's not going to go well today. Do you mind if I stay? And they'll come in, and within 15 or 20 minutes, usually there's this progression of sedation, even all the way into a coma, a point where people are unresponsive completely, even to, you know, a lot of stimulation. Um, and, and they're sick, and they're sort of on the trajectory toward, toward overdose. There's something I didn't explain yet, um, which might be puzzling people. Okay. Um, you know, a typical pure opiate overdose is characterized by respiratory depression, um, that a breathing eventually stops and oxygen levels go down, and a person goes into a really respiratory and eventually cardiac arrest. In the part of the world where I work, um, in Boston here, the culture is one of polysubstance use. Um, such that um, there's really a cocktail of substances that people are taking um, together that includes heroin, but also um, other substances that potentiate um, or make more extreme the effects of the opiate. Like what? Those are, those are things like benzodiazepines, um, clonopin most commonly here. Um, also, a medication that's prescription called clonidine, which we in medicine we use to lower blood pressure. Um, it's an antihypertensive. It's also used as a mood stabilizer for some some mental illnesses. And and there's a handful of other medicines like gabapentin or neurontin, um, uh, which is a prescription medication as well. So what what's happening here is people are layering substances. Um, with heroin. And so the, the overdoses that we see are not necessarily the type of which they inject and still have a needle in their arm and right there in the moment, um, um, you know, have a, an acute respiratory arrest and overdose right there. It's, it's a little bit more drawn out. Um, it's, a, it's an overdose syndrome we're seeing over the course of several hours, usually three or four hours. And it's characterized not just by respiratory depression, but also very low blood pressures, like even as low as a systolic pressure, the top number of just 660, um, and very low heart rates or bradycardia. And that's because of this combination of meds that we're seeing um, used here. So we're basically monitoring folks as they kind of go through that progression. And 
And it takes a lot of the guesswork out to be able to actually watch someone's oxygen level on a little finger probe that's not invasive in any way. Um, you don't have to guess when you need to use Narcan um, or when, when you need to intervene. Um, you know oh. when someone's safe and you can let them continue to sleep, and you know when they're not safe and you need to intervene. So you've got a little finger monitor that you put on them, and right. it doesn't prick them or anything, just like taking their temperature or whatever. And yeah. you can monitor their vitals. That's right. That's right. We, we monitor the oxygen level, and then we've also been monitoring the blood pressure and pulse because that's just, I think, in particular, because of some of the medicines that are being used here, we're seeing pretty dramatic swings in pulse and blood pressure as well. So you're not seeing so much like fentanyl and carfentanyl faced. You're uh, laced uh, um, heroin no, overdoses. 60% of the heroin supply right now in Boston is, is fentanyl. So we're seeing a lot, of, a lot of fentanyl, but we're seeing it layered with these other meds. So there's sometimes not this very characteristic pure overdose um, that you expect with just fentanyl. Got it. Okay. It's a little more complicated. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the room itself, by the way, is small. We can only fit about 10 people at a time. Um, and we're using, we sort of use recliner chairs. We've tried to make it a place that people, you know, want to come and are not fearful of coming. Um, we've got, you know, we're staffing it with a nurse who specializes in addiction and who watches these vital signs very closely, as well as a caseworker who's really a harm reduction specialist who does a lot of engagement um, with folks, very low threshold engagement. Um, what we've noticed is that our relationship with our patients has changed a lot in this room. It's very different than being in a clinic examination room where people are much more reticent to share the details of, of whether they're using substances and, and what and how and what their fears are about that. Um, in this room, the conversation is completely shifted. It's very open. People are much more open about what they're using and what they're scared about. Um, so it's a kind of environment that I think it's more conducive to helping people access treatment gradually. Sure, and understanding exactly how far the problem is, what, what exactly the problem is with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and diagnosing it properly. That's great. Um, so in terms of getting that program off the ground, I mean, it's that sounds to be a really unorthodox program. I haven't heard of another program quite like yours, doctor. So how did you go about gaining community support for this? Oh, boy. Well, if I was doing it all over again, um, I might do it a little differently. <laughs> but we, you know, we, we had... We've been in this place, this location, for the last 30 years in this neighborhood as a um, as a healthcare provider, um, and we've never ever sort of talked to or involved the neighborhood here in decisions about our clinical programming. So this was kind of a new world for us. Um, this there was a story about Spot back in November that ran on the radio here on on NPR um, that um, a local reporter did. And um, and when that happened, oh boy, um, there was just a sort of massive response, as you might expect, um, and we should have expected from the community. We didn't really think of this as particularly provocative. Um, we thought, my gosh, we're, we're managing these overdoses anyway, but we're doing it in a way that doesn't feel particularly good and is, has been hard to kind of keep everything else functioning at the same time you know, clinic. Um, so all we're doing is sort of putting some infrastructure around managing overdoses and um, sort of shifting the philosophy a little bit about 
um, you know, being more accepting of ongoing use and how to help people when that's the case. So, but the story really was provocative for the community. Um, I think our, you know, some of our elected officials here in Boston got lots of phone calls from residents in the area. And what we started to do then, which was so important, and I wish we had done this even earlier, um, was to um, begin a, a big, you know, just much more open dialogue with the community. So we started meeting with lots of neighborhood associations in our neighborhood. We started meeting with every elected official we could um, and explaining what we were doing and why we thought there was a need for it. Um, and those conversations were really rich. They were really helpful, I think, on both ends. And so we did that for several months before we opened, about six months um, and that helped, really helped us get by it. I think when we explained, you know, just what was happening in our build, in and around our building, when, you know, when we had a chance to ha have a discussion about it with people who really were concerned, that it, it helped so much and they really seemed to understand why this was needed and that this was not going to be a bad thing, um, but actually might help people get inside instead of being over-sedated and having overdose outside, this was a way to kind of get people off the street who everybody's worried about sure. um, and, and, and approach it in a different way. So it, it took a few months and a, a lot of legwork to have a chance to meet with lots of different groups, but that's what we did. Um, so how did you how did you overcome an object, objection that had to come up over and over again about this being enabling? Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, we just said over and over again that these overdoses are, are happening anyway. Um, they're happening now. In, they're happening in such high numbers. Um, what we were doing is we're, we're trying to enable people to make it to the next day, um, to, to have a chance of continued life, to have a chance of recovery eventually. We've got to keep people alive. Um, we told a lot of stories. We told a lot of patient stories. Um, we explained how, even from an operational point of view, in our health center, we, we needed at this point to build some infrastructure around this issue of overstation and overdose, um, that we couldn't keep responding as an, you know, in an emergent way in the midst of everything else going on in our clinic. Like our operations will literally come to a halt um, several times a week, and that's just not okay. We've got to be able to serve the rest of our, our patients. Um, and so, but basically, we, we really tried to explain that, um, that, that opiate use disorder and overdose is happening already in greater numbers than we've ever seen before, and that our patients and the folks that we know are not going to start using or use more because this service is available. People are desperate for help. They don't want to die. Um, they want to know how to keep themselves safe, um, even as they are suffering from from addiction. And so we told a lot of patient stories. We, um, you know, we, we tried to sort of elicit as much compassion as we could. We invited people in to see the space, to see the building, to talk about what they're seeing on our street corners here in the neighborhood. Um, and, 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 and people, you know, generally agreed with that. I think one of the things that, um, that, that came up again and again in the conversation was that um, people thought most of the, a lot of times that we talked about this, they thought what we were doing was opening something called a supervised injection facility. 
Now, I actually think that that's something we need to be doing now in 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 a number of places in the United States where the epidemic is, um, where things have just reached such a high numbers. And that's a whole other podcast, perhaps, a whole other discussion. Um, and, you know, but what we're doing is not supervised injection. Supervised injection in the United States is illegal. It, it, it's um, illegal because of our Controlled Substances Act. So to be to, clear, no one is coming into your facility and injecting right there. That's right. That's exactly right. So if that's illegal. We didn't want to. We're not going to put sure. our staff and 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 patients at risk um, by yep. doing something illegal. Yep. But what we're doing is a little bit is is a few steps shy of that. And yeah. Saying okay, you can't do it in the building, but mm-hmm. after you do it, you're so welcome to come in. Let us let us keep you safe. Let us try to connect you with care. Let us build a relationship that's different than you're used to experiencing in the healthcare setting. Um, one that's more open, more accepting, a um, lot of compassion. Um, and maybe because of that, eventually we're going to help connect you to treatment. So um, since you've been open, since the SPOT facility has been open, can you give us a sense for how many lives you've touched? Yes, yes. We have been tracking the numbers. So we opened at the end of April. And the last time I looked at the numbers, um, we had been open for 18 weeks. And if you and these numbers, I think, sound very high to me because it's such a small space with room for only 10 people. But in the first 18 weeks that we've been open, we've had 1,300 encounters. Oh, my. 1,300? Yeah. 1,300. People are, um, there's a need. Um, and these are, these are encounters of you know, folks who would otherwise be outside. They would have nowhere to go in this state. Um, they would be trying to come in quietly and just sort of get by, you know, in some public space without, you know, getting noticed. Um, and they certainly wouldn't be engaging necessarily with anybody. I mean, who's going to let them in their front door sure. when they're sort of in a bad way? So one part of this is saving them from the outside and, and just monitoring them so that they, they don't die that day. But another part of it is reaching out, offering help, and having them take that help and go into treatment. Do you have any numbers on that? We don't have numbers on that yet. Um, it turns out that's very hard to track uh, because... Um, for lots of reasons, but but one is, for instance, that we don't have access to the treatment databases. Um, When we send someone to treatment, and what what we usually do is someone will come in and say, let me tell you our approach with this. Basically, any kind of treatment that you are interested in, that's what we're going to explore. If you are interested in methadone maintenance, if you're interested in Suboxone, if you're interested in detox and you really want to go down the path toward residential treatment, um, that's what we're going to look for. Um, so we follow someone's lead and what they're interested in. This is a group of people who have not had success generally with lots of different kind of treatments, and so they know a lot about it. Um, but when they're ready, we start to jump. If it's uh, methadone that you're interested in, we work like heck to even get next-day dosing, next day. Um, we have a couple methadone providers nearby who um, have been willing to kind of fast-track the people who are in this situation. I mean, they're just so high risk for death. Um, but let's try that. If it's possible, um, you're interested in that, let's try it. If it's Suboxone that you're interested in, we are going to fast-track you into our own Suboxone clinic or, or any other that you're interested in. We're going to 
um, do everything we can to get that medication into you as quickly as possible, along with all the other supports that go along with that, counseling and um, et cetera. If it's detox that you want, we're going to start making phone calls and we're going to just go down the list and we're going to, we've been sort of trying to broker relationships with all the detox programs so that we can um, slip people in as soon as they're interested. We're going to take you there. Um, if we get a bed, we're going to grab it right then and there. It's really hard to track how many people end up um, actually going and staying and, and, and in treatment uh, because our databases aren't linked with any of those. Um, sure, But Got I can it. tell you anecdotally that um, a, at this point about 10% of the patients that we're seeing in the program, people that we're seeing, um, are expressing interest in treatment and we're connecting them immediately to treatment. And that number may sound low to you, um, but it actually sounds, you know, like a really good start to me. Um, and, and the reason is that, again, it's a group of people who have very severe substance use disorder and have, um, you know, have had typically a lot of experience with the treatment um, uh, continuum um, that hasn't been good. Um, and they're at just such high risk for death. So to me, like, you know, 10% is a really good start. Um, and what I can't tell you, because we just don't have access to the data, is how many people actually end up, you know, having success with treatment um, when they get in through this program. Sure. So hopefully at some point those numbers will come around and they'll be available. So, Doctor, can you comment on the program's overall impact in your community? Sure. Um, you know, I'll tell you that it um, after so much fanfare and finally opening, it felt like such a relief to um, lots of people who work and live on this in this in this neighborhood. A relief? Was, did you say? A relief? What's that? A, a relief, did you say? A, a relief. It was a relief yeah. that it was yeah. open yeah. because it felt Got like it. there was actually a resource that wasn't there before. Yep. Like where you just, you didn't know what this, you might offer this person in front of you on the street. Got it. Um, or the only alternative was the alleyway or to try to sit at the public library or somewhere. Like now there was somewhere you actually, and you knew that they're, you know they're going to be safe. Um and you know that you know that they're not going to die if if they're being monitored closely, and so it felt like a relief. We, um, gosh, the beds just filled up immediately, and it's been that way ever since. We have lots of people who are who bring people in, um, and so the, it's really spread by word of mouth. We haven't advertised it all, and yet it's been. Um, you know, just pretty much stuffed to the gills. There are times really when we don't have enough space for the people coming in, and when that happens, um, you know, if they're really sedated, we, we, we end up having to send them to the emergency room if we don't have space, and we're not sure what direction it's going to go, and they can't walk. Um, so it's been well utilized. I think it's been a relief. The neighborhood was worried about lots of things, like will it increase drug trafficking in, in the neighborhood? Will it increase, you know, the use of syringes um, uh, publicly and publicly discarded syringes? We have been tracking lots of those metrics. Um, we tracked them for um, about three months before we open and about three months after, um, and we're really seeing that there's no change, which I think is important, um, that there hasn't been more, there aren't more publicly discarded syringes in the neighborhood. Um, and you know, none of the metrics of drug use that are um, that you know, have to do with kind of public orderliness have changed, and I think that you know I, I would I would 
be naive to think that that this program, for instance, would um, decrease the amount of discarded needles that are in our neighborhood here. Um, it would be naive to think that. And, and, um, and the reason is that while we certainly provide sharps containers and an outlet for people to bring their syringes back, what we're not doing in this program is actually having them use on site. Um, and that's actually something I think we need to do. I think that supervised injection would actually change a lot of the public orderliness um, surrounding drug use in the neighborhood. Um, but again, that's a whole whole other story. But I'm, I'm glad to say that it hasn't increased um, any of the metrics that we're following. Okay. So for those that would want to do this in their community, what would be the advice that you would give them? And also, how long did this take you to get up and rolling, doctor? Um, but the advice I guess I, I would give is this. I think this kind of program is well suited to places where um, you've got kind of hot spots of um, hot spots of, of drug use happening. So you know, urban areas where there's a clustering of, for whatever reason, there's a clustering of overdoses. Um, it, and, um, and and in particular, I would say it's helpful for communities uh, of people who have nowhere else to be or to go. Um, so I, I think it makes a lot of sense that we're, try, you know, we're really providing the service for people who lack housing um, and have nowhere else to go. That's kind of the perfect type of um, population and geography that this kind of program is helpful for. Um, the advice I would give is to engage public officials early and community neighborhood associations. That there there is some there is quite a bit of um, buy-in that is needed because it, it is a provocative idea to open your arms and open your doors to people who are actively using, even if they don't want treatment right now. That is that's provocative. Yeah. Um, so, and ha you asked how long it took. I would say that. Um, I'd say it took about eight months to get up and going once we started planning in earnest, but part of the reason it took that long was just the amount of time it needed to, uh, we needed to, to sort of uh, gain buy-in from, from, from the community. Sure, but I was envisioning much longer than that. That's, that's great. That's great. Anything else that you'd like our listeners to know about the SPOT program, this innovative program that you've established in Boston and your community? Sure. Um, one last thing I might say is just about the funding. Um, people who are interested in doing this may be interested in that. Um, yeah. And I'll say that it's not a particularly expensive kind of program to run. You need um, nurses who love this kind of work, um, and 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 you know, relatively small number of staff. Um, and our program again is small. Um, and we decided because it was new and different um, to ask for, um, to, we, did, we did some fundraising, uh, essentially, to, to raise money through private donations and also foundations. Um, and that's how we got off the ground. We raised enough money um, to pay people's salaries and pay for the equipment that we needed by doing some fundraising. But actually what we've learned is that, um, that most of the encounters happening in this room um, are actually pretty high-level medical encounters. People are so sick that that monitoring really is meets a level of medical necessity that we can bill, um, that we can bill our you know um, insurance people's insurance. And yeah. so in, in this case, it's almost all you know Massachusetts Medicaid. Um, so we're going to start to do that soon. Hmm. Um, so what's your annual budget for this, doctor? Um, it's about two hundred thousand dollars. Okay. 
And uh, let's go back for just a second. Uh, the number of uh, people that you can accommodate, that's 10. And so was that by design or the room just accommodated that or that was your overall plan? You thought, okay, you know, in this community and everything, we need to make sure that we can accommodate 10 people and that's that. Uh, it was only uh, limit, limited by the space that we had available. And in fact, I think um, we could certainly use an expansion and, you know, we should be looking at, at doing this here locally in, in a number of the homeless shelters um, that are open and, and, and any other space that we can find in this area to get folks who are in a bad way off the streets and have them building a more trusting relationship um, with uh, harm reduction and healthcare professionals. So in a perfect world, how many people would you be able to accommodate at one time in a perfect world? Hmm. Well, I guess it just depends on the need in the community. What I would say here, just based on the use of spot so far is mm -hmm. that um, it could stand to be two to three times as big as it is right now. Okay. Um, just right here. But I think it depends on the local, oh, local most, need. Most certainly. Sure, sure. Okay, great. So, Doctor, are there any other programs of note that you're aware of that have been effective fighting the opioid epidemic in Boston? Yes. Um, in fact, I, was, I just looked at some data I'll tell you about um, that was stoked that that's so compelling, that's brand new out of our state. In Massachusetts, we have our state's Department of Public Health has an overdose registry, obviously. They know um, a lot of information about every single overdose that happens each year. And this year, for the first time, they linked that database with lots of other state databases, including Medicaid and the Department of Corrections and lots of other state databases. What they found uh, that was so compelling to me was that once somebody has a non-fatal overdose, they don't die, they have an overdose, their chance of dying from an overdose is cut in half if they are prescribed methadone or suboxone. And I just don't know of any other treatment that has that, that amount of efficacy in, in keeping someone alive. What about Vivitrol? Um, in this epidemic. Vivitrol was, that was not discovered with Vivitrol, but I'll, I'll say that you know, I don't think we have enough data on Vivitrol yet. We don't have as many people on it. Um, and um, the data just isn't there yet in terms of comparing it with methadone and, and suboxone. Um, but I'm just sort of really struck by, you know, this fact that if someone has overdosed um, and they have any interest, it's ideal that we get them on um, a treatment that actually is going to prevent death in the future. Um, and, and nothing else did that. Um, so that's very compelling. We also, I'll tell you about Vivitrol, one thought about that is that um, when I think about that medication, just pharmacologically, it being an opiate receptor blocker, um, that an ideal time to, to, to use that is when people are coming out of periods of time where they've been in recovery, um, whether that's long-term residential treatment or even periods of incarceration, where on discharge they're at particularly high risk of relapse, um, and they're you know pretty highly motivated to stay away from heroin or opiates. Um, that's sort of the perfect time to use this long-acting um, opiate receptor blocker. Um, so I see it as um, a medicine that's really good at, in that um, in that scenario. 
and I'm not so convinced yet. I think we need a lot more data um, to understand it's, um, and, and I'll tell you that most of the patients that I'm seeing don't want to be on an opiate receptor blocker, and some actually, um, I just don't think that it will be enough. Um, again, I think of this disease, you know, to draw a parallel with diabetes, I think there are some people who have such severe disease that they are going to need insulin, and they're not going to need insulin temporarily. Um, there has been a change in brain chemistry, and um, having an opiate agonist on board is going to be the only thing that's going to keep some people with very severe disease um, able to be uh, free of heroin, fentanyl, other opiates. Um, so in any case, I guess what I would say is in, in Massachusetts, we're really beginning to, to see the effects of medication-assisted treatments. Um, and I also think that we have a tremendous network of needle exchange programs that have done so much to distribute naloxone in community settings. Um, that's something I think we need to expand. And, um, and, and then, of course, the other thing I've mentioned a few times um, that I think we really need to be looking at carefully and considering in the United States is an intervention that has had um, a tremendous impact on overdose epidemics in other countries, and that's supervised injection facilities. Any final comments for our listeners, doctor? Um, I was thinking um, of just telling you one brief little anecdote from Spot. Great. Um, which is, is this. A few weeks after we opened, um, one of our staff members came across a woman who was young in her 20s who was propped up against the side of our building um, in, um, an, in a little alleyway up back. And she was um, not really able to talk, really sedated. Um, and they kind of slumped them over, slumped her over their shoulders, and, uh, and she limped in with them. And we brought her in, couldn't talk to her. She stayed in spot most of the day. It took her so long before the substances that she had used wore off. We watched these pretty dramatic fluctuations in her vital signs. We did not need to use Narcan, but she was pretty sick. Um, and by the end of the day, she started to wake up, and she felt a pillow under her head. And she just started to cry. She just broke down crying and said, where am I? What is this place? Who are you? I have not had a pillow under my head in so many years. And why are you being nice to me? No one's nice to me. <laughs> like, what is this? She, she just couldn't believe it. Um, yeah. And that's just kind of a, you know, sad, sobering sad anecdote right. of yeah. that. There's so much stigma. People are, are used to being treated so poorly. And not having very much support. And that's why I think programs like this can really help change the conversation with folks. No doubt. Well, thank you, Doctor. I really want to thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for, thanks for being interested in this program. Okay. So we've been talking with Dr. Jessie Gaeta today. She is the Chief Medical Officer of the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program, supervising the medical practice, including physicians, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants that have provided a supportive place for observation and treatment, a program by the name of SPOT that's been very effective in our community. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources, and thank you for tuning in for this podcast.
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.